Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 13, Numbers chapter 11, continued. Well, last time in Numbers 11, we ended with a very curious circumstance. You know, that's, that, that, that's easy to just kind of read over and miss it. And it concerns the matter that God is going to anoint 70 elders of Israel with the same spirit. The same Ruach HaKodesh that's upon Moses. Now the reason for doing this is that Moses needs help in leading these Israelite tribes because the weight of the responsibility upon just one man was too much. Yet key to these 70 men being useful in leading God's people is that they must be of the same spirit as Moses. Now what's so curious is that the text plainly means that the spirit must be drawn from that which is upon Moses already in order that it be distributed among the 70 proposed leaders. Now, look at me as we read, or look with me rather, as we reread a couple of verses of Numbers chapter 11. Turn to page 160 in your complete Jewish Bible. Numbers chapter 11. And we're going to just start by reading two verses, verses 16 and 17, since we've read this all the way through anyway. Adonai said to Moses, Bring me seventy of the leaders of Israel, people you recognize as leaders of the people and officers of theirs. Bring them to the tent of meeting and have them stand there with you. I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take some of the spirit which rests upon you and put it on them. Then they will carry the burden of the people along with you so that you won't carry it yourself alone. Now, what exactly does it mean that God is going to draw upon the Spirit or take some of the Spirit from Moses and put it on those 70 elders? You know, we lightly touched on that last week, and I'd like to begin this week by discussing it just a little further. At the least, this means that Moses and these 70 are going to share the same Spirit, the same Holy Spirit. This concept ought to be familiar to us. Because possessing the same spirit is precisely what the New Testament tells us is the point of unity among all believers. Listen to Ephesians 4.1 I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So this gives us yet another example that the New Testament is simply the Torah 
brought forward with the context of Jesus as Messiah now added to the mix. Yet we cannot get around the fact that the words of Torah in their Hebrew context point out that whatever the nature of this Holy Spirit is that is going to be laid upon the 70 men, apparently it is going to have to be taken from Moses. Even the rabbis and sages of old see that Moses is some kind of a container of the Holy Spirit on earth at this moment in history. And that the Spirit is going to have to be drawn from Moses so that it can be shared among the 70. Now, as strange as that may seem in some ways, upon closer examination, we have this concept of the Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, being drawn from somebody for the purpose of being placed into others, brought forward in none other than Jesus Christ. Let's go open your Bibles to John chapter 16. John 16. We're going to read the first 15 verses of John chapter 16, 1 through 15. In the complete Jewish Bible, it is page 1351. Give you a second to get there. I want you to follow it with me. I have told you these things so that you won't be caught by surprise. They will ban you from the synagogue. In fact, in time, the time will come when anyone who kills you will think he's serving God. They will do these things because they have understood neither the Father nor me. But I've told you this so that when the time comes for it to happen, you'll remember I told you. I didn't tell you this at first because I was with you. But now I am going to the one who has sent me. Not one of you is asking me, where are you going? Instead, because I have said these things, you're overcome with grief. But I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the comforting counselor will not come to you. However, if I do go, I will send him to you. Now, when he comes, he will show that the world is wrong about sin about righteousness, about judgment, about sin and that people don't put their trust in me, about righteousness and that I'm going to the Father and you will no longer see me, and about judgment in that the ruler of this world has been judged. Now, I still have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. However, when the Spirit of Truth comes... He will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but will only say what he hears. He will also announce to you the events of the future. He will glorify me because he will receive what's mine and then announce it to you. Everything the Father has is mine. This is why I said 
that he receives what is mine and will announce it to you. You know, if we were studying the New Testament and not the Torah, we could camp here for a couple of weeks because the theology is so full. But what I'd like to draw your attention to for today is this comment that until Christ leaves, the Comforter cannot come to the disciples of Yeshua. And the Comforter is clearly identified as the Spirit. So Jesus is saying that until he goes, the Holy Spirit cannot be made available to others. But for me, that just leaves a pretty big question hanging in the air. Why can't the Spirit be available to others until Yeshua is no longer on the earth? You ever wonder about that? Why does he have to be gone in order for the Spirit to be presented to other people? Well, if we accept that God's principles and patterns and methods of operation never change, the solution is that as it was with Moses and Torah, so it was for Christ. It appears that like Moses was the sole person upon whom the Holy Spirit rested for a time in the Torah era. So Yeshua was the sole repository of the Holy Spirit during his era of ministry. A difference that seems to be so, but it's pretty hazy, it's difficult to actually ferret out of the holy texts and then draw a contrast between them, is this matter of the Holy Spirit upon Moses, but apparently within Yeshua. That difference, you know, is spoken of at length, of course, in the modern church as a demonstration of the difference in function of the Spirit in the Old versus New Testament. But you know, an honest reading says that there's really nothing that actually says straight out something like, the Spirit used to be upon us, but now it's in us. Or something that definitive. It could well be that there's not a lot of difference intended. And that it's really just a matter of semantics between the Old Testament Hebrew culture of several hundred years B.C. and the New Testament Hebrew culture of Paul's day, or it could be all the difference in the world, as is the belief of traditional Christianity. But in both cases, a time came when God determined it was necessary to share his spirit among more than only his mediators, Moses, and then 1,300 years later, Yeshua. Now, the verses from Numbers 11 say that the Spirit had to be drawn from Moses. Now, how that was going to happen, we're not told. Now, for Jesus, it was less a matter that the Spirit be drawn from him, and more a matter he had to give it up in order for it to be shared. Because, indeed, we're told that when he died, he shouted and he yielded up his Spirit. His Spirit was a Holy Spirit. Which, of course, is what Christ said in John 16 was the necessary step toward ordinary men, albeit only his believers, being able to share in that same spirit that was first given to Yeshua when he was baptized by his cousin John, that spirit that was seen descending upon him like a dove. See, the thing is, here in Numbers 11, we find that even though Moses 
will have that Holy Spirit that was upon him and him alone for a time, now drawn upon and shared among 70 others, that the Spirit is not somehow chopped up and divided up. Its substance and wholeness is not diminished. It's not depleted in any way just because many are going to have it. And I'm pretty sure none of you have a problem with that concept because that's generally how we of the church view the Holy Spirit. That although we all share in it, we don't each hold a small piece of it, a diminished piece of the Spirit within each of us. Now I'm pointing this out to you right, because of a very basic teaching of Christian doctrine that I'm standing here today to tell you is misguided and simply error. Okay. And that teaching is that the Spirit of God was never shared among men until Christ came and then went. Okay. We find right here in Numbers that the Holy Spirit of God was shared among 71 individuals 1,300 years before Yeshua was born. The point is, the entire premise of the Holy Spirit being shared among many men simultaneously is a Torah principle, not a brand new New Testament principle. What did Christ say? I came to fulfill. And that's what he did. And part and part or parcel with the matter of the sharing of the Holy Spirit among men is an erroneous belief that at the beginning of the Gospel of John, Mankind is given a whole new revelation that was never even thought about among men before. In fact, John 1 is often called the basis, or considered rather the basis, for a whole new religion, or theology at least, called Christianity. Now, let me speak to you the first five verses of John 1. They're going to be familiar. You don't have to turn your Bibles there. In the beginning was the Word... The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things came into being by Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness didn't comprehend it. Now, now pay attention to this, place. The idea that the Word, then made incarnate in Jesus was with God and is God did not begin with the Apostle John. John was simply stating a well-worn Jewish principle that though not accepted by all Jews, still it was mainstream and widespread among the Jews of Jesus' day. The idea of an entity, a divine entity called the Word that was in existence from the beginning, did not begin with the advent of Christ on earth and the subsequent inspired writings of the Apostle John. When we go back and look at ancient Hebrew writings well before the time of Yeshua, we will find rabbis and sages debating and scratching their heads over the very same thing we still do in the church. Is God one or is God two? Is the word God, or is the word another God? And believe me, there are Christian denominations that have real trouble with that. Okay, Is the word an attribute of God, 
Or is he a separate person who is subservient to God? See, eventually, several hundred years after Christ's death, Gentile Christians decided that God wasn't only two, he was three. Okay, The doctrine of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not here to dispute or debate any of those doctrines. I'm here to tell you that the concept was not a new invention. Long before Jesus, the Jews identified a divine being or attribute of God known as the Word. Okay, In Hebrew, the Word is called Memra. M-E-M-R-A, Memra. In Greek, it's called Logos. You've heard that term, Memra and Logos. So for those scholars out there, Logos and Memra is exactly the same thing. It's just in different languages. And it's what today has been translated into English as the Word. Now the thing I want you to take with you is this. Many doctrines that the Gentile church has attempted to put forward to make belief in Yeshua as totally different and apart from true biblical Judaism with the historically well-documented intent of separating Jews from Christians, by the way, is simply not so. The main thing that separates Christianity and Judaism is who the word is. Not if he exists. The differences between us are about who the Messiah is and has he already come. Not if there is to be a Messiah. The Jews also believed in the Holy Spirit. And that it could be laid upon men and shared among men. And and they thought this. They had this thought, this concept, long before Joseph and Mary came onto the scene. Okay. We, re- we just read of it here in Numbers concerning Moses and the 70 elders. And the Hebrews of old hotly debated the problem of just how to think about a God that is one, Echad, yet he's manifested in more than one way. The Word, the Memra, being one of those ways. The Holy Spirit, the Ruach, Another of those ways. And even another manifestation of Yehovah that's mostly absent from the Western Church and so rarely discussed, but I will tell you it's alive and well in the Eastern uh, Orthodox denominations, is the manifestation of wisdom called Sophia. Yes, that term, Sophia, is biblical. These topics about who God was, and was he many or one, and what his essence was, see, these were not the source of new arguments put forth by this new Christian religion. It was only treated as new because the Gentiles, who quickly became the ruling elite of this new religion, Christianity, distanced themselves from the Jewish people, and from long-established Jewish scholarship. Goodness, they even distanced themselves from those scores of thousands of Jewish brothers who did accept Yeshua as the Messiah. So if I can accomplish anything in Torah class, 
I hope it's to demonstrate that the man-made designations and divisions of Old and New Testaments are a terrible, artificial thing all right, that serve to do nothing but divide God's people. The Old Testament for the Jews, the New Testament for the Gentiles. You know, in reality, the book of Matthew should have been simply the next book following Ezra. In the same way that Exodus is but the next book after Genesis. But unfortunately, Matthew is virtually seen by Jews and Christians alike as the beginning of a whole other Bible. Separate from the previous one. The Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, that we call the Old Testament, is like the blueprints of a house. What we have labeled the New Testament is like the house itself. No doubt we can move into that house and enjoy it just as it is. But if we really want to understand what materials were used to build that house... Where the electrical wires run, where the pipes are located, how that foundation was we built, what's inside those walls? We better have the blueprints. Okay. And as believers, we're called to be a lot more than just occupiers of the house. We're to strive to understand all that we can know about that house. Now, once we understand and accept that the Bible is an undivided whole, then we can begin to apply the patterns and principles of Torah to the Gospels and the Epistles of the New Testament as it was meant to be and have a much better understanding of their meaning and how to apply it all to our lives. Let's move on and read a little more of, uh, of uh, Numbers, uh, chapter 11. So go back to Numbers, chapter 11. Again, page uh, 160 in the complete Jewish Bible. We're going to read from 18 oh, all the way to the end. Tell the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow and you will eat meat. Because you cried in the ears of Adonai, if only we had meat to eat. We had the good life in Egypt. All right, Adonai is going to give you meat. And you will eat it. You won't eat it for a day or two or five or ten or twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out of your nose and you hate it. Because you've rejected Adonai, who is here with you, and distressed him with your crying and asking, oh, why did we ever leave Egypt? But Moses said, here I am with 600,000 men on foot, and yet you say, I'll give the meat to eat for a whole month? If whole flocks and herds were slaughtered for them, would that be enough? If all the fish in the sea were collected for them, would that be enough? And Adonai answered Moses, has Adonai's arm grown short? Now you'll see whether what I said will happen or not. So Moses went out and told the people what Adonai had said. And then he collected 70 of the leaders of the people and placed them all around the tent. And Adonai came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on to the 70 leaders. And when the spirit came to rest on them, they prophesied. Then, but not afterwards. Now, there were two men who stayed in the camp. One named Eldad and the other Medad, and the Spirit came to rest on them. They were among those listed to go out to the tent, but they hadn't done so. And they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, who from his youth up had been Moses' assistant, answered, My Lord, Moses stopped them. But Moses replied, 
Are you so zealous to protect me? I wish all of Adonai's people were prophets. I wish Adonai would put his spirit in all of them. Moses and the leaders of Israel went back into the camp. And Adonai sent out a wind, which brought quails from across the sea and let them fall near the camp. About a day's trip away on each side of the camp and all around it, covering the ground to a depth of three feet. The people stayed up all that day, all night, all the next day gathering the quails. The person gathering the least collected ten heaps. Then they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. But while the meat was still in their mouth, before they'd chewed it up, the anger of Adonai flared up against the people, and Adonai struck the people with a terrible plague. Therefore, that place was named Kivrot Hata'ava, Graves of Greed, because there they buried the people who were so greedy. From Kivrot Hata'ava, the people traveled to Hatzrot, and there they stayed at Hatzrot. Okay, the first of the two gripes that the people brought to Moses and then Moses brought to God was solved. Now, it wasn't solved the way Moses thought it should, but it was solved nonetheless. Moses thought that God himself should take on the burden of these ill-tempered Israelites. But God said, you know, I have a better idea, Moses. I'm going to give the same spirit I gave to you to 70 other men, and you, Moses, together with them, will carry the burden. Now, the second gripe is the people wanted meat. They were tired of manna. And the Lord, righteously provoked, responds, You want meat? I'll give you meat. So much meat, it'll make you vomit. In fact, the unbelievable amount of meat that the Lord is somehow going to provide for them won't really be the blessing they hoped for. It'll be more like a curse. But, you know, as preparation for receiving the the meat, people are told something interesting. They're told to sanctify themselves. Now, being sanctified is a necessary requirement to get prepared for and be in Jehovah's presence. Now, the Hebrew word used here is heat kadesh. And it is the physical act of both bathing one's body and washing one's clothing. Both things. Once that happens, all the rules of ritual purity apply. Meaning that if somebody now goes out and touches a dead body, for instance, they lose that necessary purity. No sexual intercourse could be allowed after the event for which the sanctification process was ordered complete. Otherwise, the purity was defiled. We're going to find this term of sanctify yourself in a number of forms in the Old Testament. And one very memorable one is when the Israelites are camping on the eastern bank of the Jordan River. And they're told to heat Kadesh, wash themselves and wash their clothes in preparation for being led by the Lord across the Jordan and into the promised land. Now, another interesting fact is that this term, Heat Kadesh, only applied to lay people. 
This is not the term used when the priests do their ritual bathing. That term is either rahatz, which means to wash, or taher, which is to purify. Now, here's what we need to take from this. This heat kadesh form of self-sanctification is something that, while it's a holy endeavor, it's not officiated by a priest or performed by a priest. It is literally self-sanctification. The thing to notice, though, is that what this self-sanctification involves is a purely physical act. The washing of body and the washing of garments. Of course, it is done in devotion to God. I think we can equate this to the concept of the difference between following the law for self-sanctification that attains a kind of self-righteousness versus putting on the blood of Yeshua for a spiritual divine sanctification that attains a kind of God-righteousness that's not physical, nor can a man attain it for himself under any circumstance. The thing is that modern evangelical Christianity says that the latter has replaced the former, and I think that's very incorrect. These two types of sanctification, self-provided and God-provided, are for two different purposes. Obedience to the law brings a kind of righteousness that's definitely demanded of God, and pleasing to him. But at the same time, it cannot and does not bring with it an internal spiritual sanctification that has been performed by the Lord that we call salvation. The spiritual sanctification that can only be apprehended by trust in Yeshua, a work of God, is the only kind of sanctification that saves Yet, that does not negate the need for a sanctification of our behavior, obedience of the law, that by definition is a physical matter. It seems to me that this heat kadesh is exactly a demonstration of this God principle. Now, in response to the Lord's concession of providing meat, Moses, skeptical as always, good old Moses, he responds... Now, just exactly how, God, are you going to provide meat out here in the middle of nowhere for 600,000 men and their families? Now, remember, the 600,000 number is simply the size of the Israelite army, males, a fighting age. Add to that women and children and feeble and lame and elderly, and we're nearing something like 3 million people. And it's not just meat for a day or two, but God says he's going to provide meat for a month. Now, here we have the Lord has stated how he's going to solve these two problems. And so he sets about to accomplish it. The 70 elders are brought to the tent of meeting. 
And then in a cloud, it says that Yehovah descended and he drew upon that spirit that was upon Moses and he put it on those 70 elders. Even more, when it happened, the 70 began speaking in ecstasy. Your Bibles probably say prophesied instead of speaking in ecstasy. My only qualm with using the word prophesy, by the way, is that for us today, and really for the remainder of the Bible, prophesy communicates something different than what went on here. Okay, Here, they weren't teaching the word of the Lord, which is one meaning of the term prophesy, nor did they speak of the future, another meaning of the term prophecy. Rather, it was some kind of very excited speech, and what it was, we don't know. What we do know is that these 70 did not become prophets. And we have no indication of these elders ever being involved with this type of experience again. In fact, it is specifically stated in verse 25 that whatever ability or meaning there was to this very short period of ecstatic speech, it did not continue in these men. And the idea of all this is that their strange, excitable speech validated that they indeed had received the Spirit of God. Now, does any of this sound the least bit familiar to you? Was there another time when the Holy Spirit descended upon people and they began speaking in a special, excitable way? Sure there was. Most children who have attended Sunday school for any length of time know about it. How about Pentecost? When the Holy Spirit descended and those Jewish believers who received the Spirit started speaking in other tongues. Acts 2.1 And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. There appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing itself. And it rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Spirit. And they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving, uh, giving them utterance. Well, once again it seems that the entire concept of the Spirit of God descending upon many men with the result being some kind of special speech as proof was not a brand new New Testament revelation after all. But rather it was the repeat of a pattern that was set down 1,300 years earlier. Told of in the Torah, right here in Numbers 11. Well, suddenly in verse 26, the scene shifts. Two men, Eldad and Medad, who were nowhere near the tent of meeting, or apparently part of the 70 that had been selected, had the Spirit of God rest upon them. And there's no explanation for this at all. But what's interesting is that it says they remained in the camp. Now think about this for a minute. What's implied here, and indeed, indeed oral tradition says this is the case, that often when camping in a place for a short time or perhaps for a few days, there was a tent set up outside of the camp. Now it could have been, some say it was because it took too long for this enormously long column of people that would have spread out for many miles of travel to finally form up and become a formal camp around the tabernacle. So the tabernacle was set up at some convenient place in the column of the Israelites. Now, it's easily imaginable uh, imaginable that the beginning of the column was at least one day's and two day's journey in front of the people who marched at the other end of it. We're talking three million people here. 
Now we're going to talk next week about this very interesting matter of the tent of meeting. Because here, it specifically makes the point that this tent of meeting was not inside the camp. It was outside the camp. So we're going to get into that. There's some interesting stuff about that. That'll be next week. So here we get this picture of the Holy Spirit descending among people, and this people, in this case two men, inside the camp of Israel, and 70 outside the camp of Israel. And the obvious symbolism is that the Holy Spirit was not just intended for the higher classes or for dignitaries. The Holy Spirit could be bestowed on someone of any class, those who were within the camp of Israel, others who were outside the camp of Israel. God would cross boundaries to give the Holy Spirit to those he deemed were his. There would be no clearer pattern or message here than what Yehovah intended to do in time's future with Yeshua as the means and the messenger of this plan that the Holy Spirit would be available to all. And fittingly, when it was noticed by the Israelites that this Eldad and Medad, who were apart from this group of 70, had received the Spirit, some people started yelling, Moses, somebody got God's Holy Spirit and they shouldn't have got it. Joshua, who would eventually take over for Moses, even pled with Moses to tell Eldad and Medad to stop speaking this ecstatic language because he just couldn't fathom how this could be possible, let alone appropriate. Moses, in the same attitude that our Lord and Master Yeshua would display, says, I wish all of the Lord's people were prophets. I wish Yehovah would put his spirit in all of them. Now, let's not miss a chance to connect some dots again between this Torah experience and the New Testament. Listen to Paul in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 2.1 First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving be made behalf on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Moses, the Savior of Israel, desired that all men would receive the Spirit. Yeshua, God our Savior, desires all men to receive the Spirit. Now Moses, despite his flaws, was such an exceptional human being and leader Joshua was all concerned that these two men, Hildad and Medad, who received the Spirit completely apart from Moses, who was in charge of the process somewhere else, might actually show Moses up. In fact, they were kind of just standing around combing their hair, far away from Moses and the 70 at the tabernacle when it happened. Moses had no interest in personal power, or in being seen as special. Nor did it matter to him that others were given gifts from the Lord that rivaled even his own. 
He simply wanted what the Lord wanted for the people, whether he understood it or not. Now that is a godly leader. Is it any wonder that Moses is so greatly revered by the Jewish people to this very day? Well, suddenly a wind starts to blow. And it's described in verse 31 as a wind coming from the Lord. And quail, birds, coming from the direction of the Red Sea to the east of them, begins falling from the sky, widespread, all over the camp. And note how it says that they fell from a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on that side. The idea is that the marching column of the three million Israelites probably stretched a distance of a two days journey. Or in other more modern terms, it was a column of people around 20 miles in length. And the Lord willed that those quails fall all along that long spread out column of weary and grumbling Israelites so that everybody could partake. Now, it wasn't that merely a sufficient amount of quails fell over this two days journey distance. It was that they fell over this vast area, something on the order of three feet deep. Hundreds of thousands of cubic yards of quails, hundreds of tons of quails were there for the taking. So, in verse 32, the people began to gather the quail, and the least person, we're told, gathered ten homers of quail, or about fifty bushels of quail. Now, several psalms recall this astounding event. I mean, it made such an impact on the Hebrew people. Listen to Psalm 78, verses 26 through 32. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens. And by his power he directed the south wind. And when he rained meat upon them like the dust, even winged fowl like the sand of the seas, then he let them fall in the midst of their camp, round about their dwellings. So they ate and were well filled. And their desire he gave to them. Before they had satisfied their desire, while their food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them and killed some of their stoutest ones and subdued the choice men of Israel. In spite of all this, they still sinned and did not believe in his wonderful works. I mean, could this event, this event have actually happened? Is there enough quail on all this earth for this to even be a possibility? Here's what Josephus says, not about that event in particular, but about the migration, the annual migration of quails as a regular and normal thing in his day across the Arabian and Sinai peninsulas. He says this, In March and April they crossed the Mediterranean, coming from the south in large bands, and then returning southwards from Europe in even more enormous flights towards the end of September. On both migrations, they are netted for the market. The flesh of the birds caught in the spring is commonly dry and indifferent, but that of those taken in the autumn is excellent. Though they rise rapidly on the wing, they seldom fly far except on their migrations, and then they are often overtaxed and simply drop, exhausted into the sea or even onto passing ships. 
that God would have caused this natural thing that was normally enormous in scope to happen on a supernatural scale fits with his pattern of operation just as we saw in the various plagues that he set upon Egypt to liberate his people from Pharaoh. But even more, this attests to the accuracy of this event when it says the Israelites spread them out all around the camp. See, this doesn't mean that they laid the quails all over the place. That's not what it's getting at. Rather, spreading them out means they plucked them, split them, and spread them open to dry. It it was the common Egyptian method to preserve meat by drying it. They did it with fish, they did it with beef, and they did it with fowl. In fact, in Egypt, the meat was rarely cooked, either before or after it was dried. Once dried, cured, they simply ate it just as it was. And these Israelites would naturally have followed the Egyptian way because they'd been in Egypt for 400 years and they didn't know anything else. Then while they were still eating the quails, that is, they had yet to run out of this enormous supply, the Lord came against them for their great offense against him to test him in such a disrespectful and ungrateful manner. What the plague was that came against them, we really don't know. But many died. The place where this happened, and so the place where these many killed Israelites were buried, was named Kivroth Hatavah. The words mean the place of craving, or there's a couple of other choices, but the place of craving is, is one of them. Now, rabbis have done a brilliant job of assessing the overall nature of this calamity of God's judgment, and their opinion about it is pretty fascinating. It is that the people craved flesh. Let me put it another way. The rabbi said they lusted after flesh. They gorged themselves on flesh. They wanted the flesh so bad that God gave them all they wanted. Jehovah turned them over to the flesh. They preferred the flesh to the heavenly food. So God gave it to them. Now this is neither allegory nor metaphor. This is but the physical demonstration of the spiritual principle that's laid out before us in the person of Yeshua. Do we want to eat of the bread of life or do we want to gorge ourselves on the ways of the flesh which leads only to death? God is not going to force us one way or the other. It's our choice. It was the Israelites' choice to reject the manna in favor of the flesh of dead birds. Once the Israelites buried their dead, they moved on to a place called Hatzrot. The best guess as to the location of Hatzrot is at a place sitting at the top of the finger of the Red Sea called the Gulf of Aqaba. A place today that's called Ein El Hadra. This is further indication that almost certainly the Israelites were at this time traveling up along the western end of the Arabian Peninsula until they reached the tip of the Red Sea, the Gulf of Aqaba, at which point the Arabian and Sinai Peninsulas merge. And from Hatzrot, their next move would have been west and then somewhat 
north, and we'll take all that up in Numbers chapter 12 next week.